0: Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of Again by the Long 1990s. I spoke to Dr. Charlie Hunt, who is a Vice-Chancellor Senior Research Fellow in the School of Global Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University, about the UN's role in conflicts in the 1990s, the lessons it learned, and the new challenges that UN peacekeeping faces in an age of COVID-19 and the rise of China. I think I feel feel like I have a little bit of a, a... kind of a lead into this because I know a bit too much about the UN so I'm going to confess right now that I was a model UN kid um, in the early 2000s but for our listeners who might not know so much about the UN can you tell us a little bit about what it was doing in the 90s what its sort of powers were?
1: Sure Um, a model UN kid that's uh, I hope you've got a a baseball cap or a t-shirt that says that.
0: To be honest I, I think I might have a trophy somewhere. (laughs)
1: that's probably more appropriate Uh, it can become very competitive in the mock security council i understand um well and and maybe that leads us into the the un in the 90s because i think as you may have discussed a little in previous episodes what's really happening at the beginning of the decade is that the un's coming into a period following a long period of division and and, and hamstringing of its ability to act. It's all of a sudden at the end of the Cold War there's this triumphalism that the the battle of ideas has been won. I know you talked about Fukuyama and the end of history before. Basically uh, George Bush Sr. is talking about a new world order at this point. So the UN is part of of that vision. Finally the UN is supposed to be able to fulfill its role as the chief global peacekeeper and no longer be trapped in this division and, and, and confrontation in its major decision making body. So um, the the decade kind of rolls out off this kind of high level of expectation um, and I think It includes a number of really both unexpected and impressive kind of highs and breakthroughs, but it's also these exceedingly low lows um, and failures that that tarnish its reputation still to this day. But ultimately, the Security Council has the only peak mandate to pass resolutions that are legally binding on on member states, on the countries of the world. Um, And it has the primary responsibility for maintaining international peace and security. So no small task um, that it's given. And it begins this decade with new hope, I guess, for its ability to do that.
0: Okay. So, yeah, I'm thinking back to my model UN days. I think part of the reason why I did win a trophy was because I was Russia on the Security Council at one point, which (laughs) was a pretty easy gig. Um, so Emma and I have a habit of being quite a little bit pessimistic in the podcast but you mentioned some highs and some breakthroughs for the UN in the 90s could you tell me a bit more about those
1: yeah sure well I mean I think that the highs and lows are actually intertwined and there's a kind of feedback effect between between them so so maybe some of the examples will if we get into those we'll we'll be able to follow through on how how the organization responded to some of its failures and and they maybe included the highs but i think right at the beginning what what we had was the secretary general Boutros Boutros-Ghali, um, which one of my daughters teddy bears is named after bbg uh, in 1992 releases this kind of blueprint this big vision that called the agenda for peace and Um, As I said, this is very, very ambitious, but it sets out this kind of role for the UN um, in conflict prevention, conflict management, conflict resolution, but also peace building. The idea that the the organization was going to be involved for the longer term and try and support countries and and societies out of conflict and and build something like a sustainable, um, prosperous society. And so at the beginning then you, you get this wave of new kind of what, what are often called missions or operations, but they're engagements, interventions of, of different sorts. But um in conflicts, particularly in Africa, but not only, where previously the, the kind of superpowers had tied up the conflicts in not not kind of frozen them in place, um, all of a sudden they become open to engagement that to to try and move them forward. So there were some successes in these kind of new 90s missions in places like El Salvador, in Namibia, Angola, Mozambique, even Cambodia. I mean, many people will pick to pieces these claims of success, of course, within each of those, there's, there's major problems and that continue again to this day. But overall, they could be seen as quite important, either successes or examples of how the UN could play more of a role. So at this point, the the organization is also institutionalizing some of its business a lot more so it builds up a kind of architecture and, and set of departments at headquarters in new york to, to run these kind of operations so the three pillars of the un being human rights development and peace and security in each of those areas you start to see a kind of formation of, of new departments and new senior leadership positions to try and bring it together so on one level that's that's potentially one story of a positive story it's this kind of consolidation of the organization in ways that help it do its business in the field i mean i think later perhaps we'll, we should talk about some of the failures a bit more but i think in response to some of the failures there's some success stories too so maybe we can come back to those
0: sure so yeah let's try and how about we get into some of the i guess more concrete examples of u.n action so emma spoke on in one episode of this podcast about somalia could you give us a bit more detail about what the u.n was doing there
1: sure well i mean it's it's a long and and complicated story and in fact the u.n's been engaged in in somalia for for a very long period of time essentially as the humanitarian crisis has taken deep hold at the the UN's, the the council is discussing this crisis, is beginning to formulate the idea, which I think is one of these big stories, a big trend of the UN in the 90s, around humanitarian suffering, the displacement of large populations, the targeting of civilians as part of um, conflicts and violence, that that is beginning to be seen as constituting a threat to international peace and security. So previously the internal affairs, as you would have learned well in your model UN days, um, in the charter enshrined is the protection of state sovereignty and the internal affairs of member states are sacrosanct and cannot be meddled with from the outside. But here at this point, point in Somalia is a real turning point or a fulcrum for this, um, the council begins to mandate um, peacekeeping missions um, to address human suffering and protection of civilians causes um, as a matter for international peace and security. This means that Chapter 7 of the Charter, which is associated with uh, coercive measures, the use of force, potentially up to lethal and deadly use of force, can be used. So there's a, a, a... uh, uh, kind of uh, what's the word a euphemism or a code word for, for the use of forces all necessary means um, and that began appearing in council resolutions um, so sorry that's a bit of context for Somalia rather than detail on it but I know you discussed the the US operations which were running alongside the UN peacekeeping mission there um, they were essentially trying to support a process in a state that was uh, labeled as a failed state and trying to uh, stabilize and bring bring a sense of security there after the uh, events of the the black hawk down helicopter incident the u.s marines killed and and dragged through the streets of mogadishu leads to um, the u.s very much uh, beginning its retreat from the un and and un peacekeeping but the un stayed there after that and sought to try and patch up the somali state uh, but really struggled to do so so in the first instance its reputation becomes kind of besmirched or tarnished because it's seen as an enforcement a partial actor in this conflict it's picking out victims and aggressors and taking on militarily certain parties to a conflict so the UN's all of a sudden in a very different principal position to what it's traditionally been in so that's the first kind of um, issue or problem that the UN faces in Somalia the second one is having stayed on to try and fix up the mess that it partly created, it really struggles to do so and fails to, to really build the institutions of the state up to, to be able to sustain itself. And and many of those um, problems we see continue to this day.
0: Okay. So could you, you, you talked about how the UN was seen in quite a damaging light after its actions in Somalia. Did that play into what took place in Rwanda and then later in the former Yugoslavia?
1: Yeah, I think they're they're inextricably linked to this kind of tragic trinity, this like three that um, kind of following in quick succession. But actually, there's a very different uh, geopolitical context, and and a, a kind of consensus around the UN's role um, across the three. So. What you have immediately after, I don't know how much you discussed this with Emma, and she'd be better placed to talk about it, but the Clinton administration, following the Somalia debacle, passes actually an executive order, something we've come become much more familiar with with subsequent presidents, but a Clinton executive order, Presidential Directive 25, which basically sets in place a U.S. Um, retreat from UN peacekeeping. It, it puts in place some pretty strict criteria around when the U.S. will be involved and ultimately says we're only going to do this under our own command and, and control. We're, we're not going to participate in UN peacekeeping and we're certainly not going to pay for it as much as we have been. So that's happening. In fact, that is passed. Um, that, that, that becomes a directive just about as the genocide in Rwanda is coming to an end. So 100 days in um, April 1994 when um, somewhere between 800,000 and a million uh, Tutsi and moderate Hutus are, are, are slaughtered in a, a genocide, uh, during which a UN mission is there, it's present, UNAMIA, um, and was there to support the implementation of the Arusha Peace Agreement, which was meant to bring a ceasefire and a, and put in place a political process to bring to an end the Rwandan civil war. That mission was never given a mandate, an explicit mandate to protect civilians. And when it reported back to headquarters that this was the situation, they... Had early warning of, of of attacks on civilians, they were not reinforced in any way that would give them the means to to act. So so what you had in Rwanda was the kind of immediate aftermath of Somalia, a kind of disengagement, a complete lack of will to to get behind a UN mission in far flung lands to save these strangers, as the phrase goes. Um, and the UN ends up being essentially a bystander to a genocide, it, it didn't entirely leave. In fact, it, it, it stayed and some uh, Ghanaian contingent stayed and, and, and uh, many people argue that many lives were saved by the, the efforts of those who remained, but there was never a significant um, mandate or resourcing given to those peacekeepers to, to significantly influence the course of the genocide. And I should add that when there was a response later, latterly, um, it was seen as a very politicized engagement with French involvement that actually led to protecting a lot of the genocide and fed into conflict dynamics in neighboring Congo. So Rwanda is a big mess. It's a, a, a huge tragedy in terms of the human toll, but it's a big slight on the UN's reputation and only really goes to confirm the skeptic's view of UN peacekeeping in Africa in the aftermath of Somalia. Somewhat later, but um, the following year, essentially, the the Europe-focused kind of mission that is taking place, which has a lot more, still retains, let's say, some kind of political capital from European and Western nations, uh, because it's much closer to home, let's say. Um, so the UNPROFOR mission in Bosnia, to to cut to the chase, has a mandate to um, administer or or, uh, uh, um, secure these safe havens, safe areas, protected areas that are supposed to protect uh, Muslim populations from uh, Bosnian Serb militias. And ultimately, they are unable to do that. The fall of these safe areas leads to Um, massacres of up to 8,000 Muslim men and boys in Srebrenica, famously, but also elsewhere. And this only, again, compounds the idea that the UN is useless, it's incapable of doing the most basic protection jobs that it's sent to do. Um, And so really that all of these three major missions precipitate a, a huge retreat from the idea of UN peacekeeping and the practice of it from the mid 1990s.
0: Okay, so do you think do you think that that's a fair assessment of the UN and its place in these in these peacekeeping missions? This idea that it is useless and it it doesn't do its job.
1: Well, at the time, I think the criticisms that we're now levelling um, probably were. Mostly fair and still and still, are, if they're on the terms that I just laid out. So if if they're on the terms that, that there was no explicit mandate to protect civilians in Rwanda, particularly, then the fact that they didn't, is it can only be held to account for the fact that it didn't, in spite of not having a mandate. The irony in Bosnia is that it's called the UN Protection Force, UNPROFOR. It's the least well named of all of the terribly acronym named <laughs> UN missions. It 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 didn't really have certainly didn't have the teeth behind any protection mandate that it had. So the criticism of the UN that they should have protected these civilians certainly should have should not have stood by as um, crimes against humanity and genocide took place. I think is a fair criticism. It's a reasonable thing to ask why that happens under the UN's watch. but And what happened next was this kind of period of introspection to say, well, if we didn't do that, why, why didn't we, why couldn't we? And if we should, then how can we, and what does it look like? And, and I think that's where we start to move into the period where the, the UN began to learn from some of these tragedies and start to try and build up a way of responding better or differently in future cases.
0: That's, that's definitely my next question. So what were those lessons that were learned and how were they implemented in the, in I guess it must be the two decades that have followed?
1: Yeah, right. So, I mean, immediately after that, well, so this is a big retreat. As I said, you get this kind of activism, you get this kind of huge stepping away from, from peacekeeping, both rhetorically and, and you see it in the numbers deployed in, in the field. Um, but it doesn't last for very long. So, so I should say this. This is kind of bookended by so there's Clinton's presidential directive that sort of sets the tone and the political context for for everyone else um, stepping back. But the Secretary General supplements his agenda for peace. So this big, broad, ambitious green green fields, blue sky agenda for for peace is supplemented by a much more conservative scaled back reality check version in 1995. So you get this, that, that, that's the kind of consolidation of the retreat. But by 1999, just a few years later, and in the world of UN stuff, which takes a long time to flow through the system, that this is a blink of an eye. Actually, very quickly, there's a big return and in a big way. So um, you see new missions um, authorized by the council in Sierra Leone, in Kosovo, um, in Timor Leste, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, I'll come back to maybe this idea of the transitional authority, which Kosovo and Timor Leste in particular had, but in Sierra Leone um, and DRC in particular, they had a protection mandate. So there was this attempt to say what we failed at before, we're now going to bring in in a big way. And so that's the evidence of the return what happens in between and the lesson learning part is this recognition in the first instance that the failure to protect was both untenable like it was it was not um possible for the un to be credible legitimate and relevant if it wasn't able to to some extent at least engage in in the idea and the the, the action of protecting civilians even if that mission that that mandate at the time and still to this day is borderline impossible for them to implement the idea that they wouldn't even try was untenable so there, there was that realization and this also comes to um something around the end of the, the decade 19 late 1990s when the secretary general kofi annan kind of challenges the membership and says if the atrocities that we saw in rwanda and Srebrenica are unconscionable to humanity, then how do we deal with this tension between state sovereignty, the inviolability of the internal and, and state and, and sovereignty of the state? On the one hand, and um, the commitment to protecting the human rights of all on the other, how do we reconcile these two kind of things? So that's one major realization on protection. And I think it's a hugely important learning that that did come out of those failures the second one though and i've alluded to this is that when we say the un i say this every time i comment on a an article or a phd chapter or something it's like what 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 exactly do you mean who is the un like what is the un and the international community is the other one that we we throw we bandy around regularly but what what does it mean well the the failings of peacekeeping often, but certainly then, were also failings of the member states, particularly those most privileged with the veto power in the Security Council, so the permanent members, but anyone involved in the peacekeeping endeavor. So even the idea of giving them a mandate to protect civilians and and getting around the controversies of doing that inside some sovereign state, Is not enough if they're not matched with the means to do so and this was captured pretty well by the u.s ambassador um, at, at the time richard holbrook who said that blaming the u.n when things go wrong is a bit like blaming madison square garden when the new york knicks lose basketball i think that emasculates the u.n too much actually there is agency in the u.n but nevertheless he makes a good point that that the organization the architecture the tools of the u.n are really only as useful as the member states allow them to be, and too often it's easy for member states to hide behind the UN and criti- join in the chorus of criticism of the UN for its failings, um, when in fact they're often at the heart of much of it. So this realization that um, member states need to step up, that they need to take responsibility for for for, for the failings of peacekeeping in the UN more generally, and act differently um to 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 respond to it was the second key learning and this was captured in a major seminal report at the end of the decade it was released in 2000 but it was this big high level panel that reflected on um some of these kind of examples of failures of peacekeeping and it included a phrase that said um the un as a set of institutions and bodies should tell the security council the member states what they need to know not what they want to hear and i think that kind of sums it up nicely that it was too easy for the the member states to ignore um reports about some of these things and not take action certainly not any timely action um and and then blame the the un later
0: you mentioned before this idea of transitional authority, and you kind of left me hanging by not explaining what that was. Can you tell me a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, okay, I can. So, thank you for for bringing me back to it. Because I think, in a way, these are the two major things that come out of the 90s for the UN, or, or the two major and actually quite remarkable things that are achieved through the UN despite all these tragedies and, and major challenges. One is the humaniz- humanization of security that I started with, the idea that the Council increasingly recognizes um, civilian suffering as a threat to international peace and security. Um, so that's the first major trend and that emerges in the protection of civilians mandate through peacekeeping, but also the way the Council handles conflict situations generally. So that's the first major trend. The second one is about how in this post Cold War era, the UN can contribute to or be the vehicle for building more peaceful um, orders, states, uh, societies, particularly those suffering from and emerging out of conflict. So this is where the UN gets into building and very occasionally becoming the state. So this liberal state building as it's often referred to particularly in this early stage is the idea that well once um conflict has come to an end it's either reached a stalemate or there's a negotiated settlement then then there needs to be attempts to build something more than just this negative piece rather than the absence of violence we need to support building this positive peace. And there was this clear focus on building kind of liberal democratic institutions of a state and that that was seen as the pathway to to sustainable peace and and development as the decade unfolded. And certainly since um, we've seen that that is as a minimum an extremely difficult thing to do. Um, probably I would argue is also flawed in some ways and some of those assumptions and ideas don't necessarily play out as intended in the places where these these state building efforts are taking place. So that's the building states part, but the becoming the state part, which is actually where your question was. The transitional authorities in Kosovo and Timor um, slightly different context, but ultimately entities um, that um, were becoming independent or seeking to become independent. In those cases, the U- um, but but also suffering, of course from from conflict with terrible suffering. Um, the UN became the state in those cases. It had a mandate from the Security Council to act temporarily as the government. And so UN bureaucrats were ministers for this, that and the other, the military and police, the uniformed components of peacekeeping became the, the state's kind of security apparatus. The police operated as the national police, so on and so forth. And this was hugely ambitious and in many ways quite controversial, um, seen as a kind of harkening back to um, the protectorate type idea and not too long since the UN had, um, kind of closed down its wing which was responsible for decolonization and 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 so on and so forth. so that's what I was referring to in Kosovo and Timor what we we haven't really seen it um exist again in the same way in a peacekeeping mission so when we think about the implications for today in a way that's disappeared but one of the things I wanted to draw a parallel to is at least this kind of more limited version or a kind of quasi sovereign uh, role that UN missions play today in places like Central African Republic, Um, to some extent, even South Sudan, where the missions, at least in some pockets, in some microcosms, are substituting for the state in various ways. Sometimes that's fundamental protection to civilians, like in South Sudan. Sometimes, like in Central African Republic, it's actually substituting for public services and and things like the policing. Um, So there is, it it did uh, lay the foundations for um, more involvement in that way, which was unforeseeable, unimaginable in the Cold War era.
0: That's, yeah, that's, it's really interesting. And I think it's also, I'm so glad you've spoken to me about that because I feel like it's a really good reminder against, I guess, kind of the episodic thinking that a lot of people would have about the UN's role and also including the US's role um, when all they learn about these places is through TV news. Um, Kind of want to bring it like right up to the present. And even though this isn't a coronavirus podcast, I'm interested in anything you can tell me about the UN's response or its responsibilities in the current crisis, in the pandemic. Hmm.
1: Yeah, there's... That's really interesting. Well, I think just to finish off on that last point, there there are a few other sort of trends or um, precedents, if you like, that that do flow through. So we we do see a number of parallels as well as differences today in what's possible and what happens in the field because of what happened, even in as far ago as as the nineties. So. Um, Yeah. And sadly, that means that there's still plenty of inaction on atrocities where particularly where geostrategic interests are playing out. So um, uh, today in Yemen, in Syria, Myanmar, where permanent members of the council have strategic interests or particular interests in um, in those places, you don't see Security Council action on some of these agendas that I've just highlighted as being such important developments for the UN. So there's this ebb and flow, there's this back and forth between progress and, and challenges, because real politic still plays a role in, 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 in the UN, of course. Um, so anyway, so that's just to sort of finish off on that last point. As for today and, and COVID-19 kind of implications, um, it's actually the International Day of UN Peacekeeping on the 29th of May, whenever that is, tomorrow. Um, yeah, that's tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> and, and I've co-authored uh, an op-ed, which I'm now plugging clearly, um, about the implications of, of COVID-19 on the future of peacekeeping. So there's two parts to the, your question. There's what's happening right now and the immediate effects. Um, but as a historian, maybe you want a slightly longer horizon on you know what it might mean. The short-term impacts are severe though, and it's worth just quickly noting them that at the moment what is normally a kind of quarter of a million people rotating through these missions in the field so it's around 80,000 100,000 at any one time but because of the rotations you have a huge number of people that go in and out of these missions around the world on behalf of the UN all of that essentially has stopped um, and and this for good reason because the the risks involved in having that kind of movement of people and from particular parts of the world suffering from from the rates of contraction of COVID nineteen, but this has big implications for what missions can achieve on on the ground. So they have more ambitious mandates now. In in many ways, they're asked to do things beyond what they could ever achieve. Um, of high expectations, and that creates high expectations among the populations and and also dependencies. So many people rely on these peacekeepers being there and doing certain things, even if it's uh, beneath what they might hope for. It's something, and, and people often, despite the UN being criticized heavily by local populations, the idea that they will up and leave at any point is also rejected quite strongly by many local populations. So the immediate effects of COVID-19 uh, restriction to what missions can do. Longer term though, and I think more interestingly, and this is what we've tried to cover in this this um, opinion, this commentary piece, is whether peacekeeping which is currently facing this downward pressure from the Trump administration it's contracting anyway in a, in a few ways a couple of major missions one in Darfur one in Congo are drawing down and there's this idea that the future of peacekeeping is a bit uncertain maybe this big like uh, unwieldy militarized thing isn't actually that effective and 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 we should we should think differently that's one camp where they think that the COVID-19 thing will be a kind of death knell, uh, like final nail in the coffin of peacekeeping. But what we've tried to do as a bit of a thought experiment is think, well, actually, if you think about the social and economic impacts of COVID-19, particularly in the global south, then the stresses on social fabric and, and people's well-being. Um, are well-known, lots of research showing that when you have these tensions and you have Downward pressure there that there's higher risk of the, the early warning signs of, of conflict, certainly, but also mass atrocities. So, contrary to maybe counterintuitively, maybe actually there's going to be more demand for peacekeeping in a in a COVID or a post-COVID era, and and what we've argued is that really. learning the lessons from the more recent crop of missions um, will be important to kind of transforming what peacekeeping looks like for the next generation of missions. So perhaps a little less militarized, lower the expectations about the idea of a kind of security blanket, a kind of immediate protection force, but engaging on the real drivers of conflict that if ameliorated and if addressed may lead to, you know, may prevention being better than the cure kind of argument.
0: That sounds really interesting. And um, I'm sure I speak for more than just the old model UN nerds, Charlie, when I said I look forward to reading it. Um, We'll absolutely make sure to tweet out a link to the article. Has it come out yet?
1: I think it's going to chime in with International Peacekeeping Day tomorrow. So on the conversation.
0: Oh, fantastic. So, Charlie, did you have any more reflections about the UN in the 90s to offer us?
1: Well, I think one major um and i think those major trends i sort of pointed to were the most important things and and that the legacy if you like of the 90s for 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 kind of conflict management through the un in general and peacekeeping is often the microcosm that the the way into to understand these things the last thing though that is worth reflecting on is the kind of and it's one of the parallels i wanted to point to we talked about the clinton administration kind of heralding, if you like, a kind of stepping away from peacekeeping following the tragedies of the early 90s um, and that presidential directive, including a kind of set of criteria and, and certainly around funding. We see a parallel now with the Trump administration because they're, they've made a, a, a strong rhetorical point of saying, you know, in a fairly anti-UN way, we, we're going to save a lot of money by not funding UN agencies, including the World Health Organization, of course, in a high profile case recently. But peacekeeping came under under the microscope, certainly, because it's such a huge outlay um, in parallel to the UN budget, the normal UN budget. So what you have is a kind of US stepping away from multilateralism in general, the UN specifically, including peacekeeping. But unlike what you had in the 90s, where in a post-Cold War era, there wasn't really um, an obvious um, replacement or substitute who would step in to fill the vacuum. Today, we we very much do have that. I mean, there's multiple actors who are stepping into some of the space being left by the US, but in particular, it's China. And, And China's Um, confounds the kind of logic of the simple logic of peacekeeping studies people who say that you know over the course of the 90s it became established and ever since that the rich western industrialized nations pay for peacekeeping and the um, global south plays so those who pay do not play and vice versa so it's the global south who put the boots on the ground and, and risk the, the national blood china confounds that model because it does both it's the second biggest funder of peacekeeping so it has leverage at the headquarters level and 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 because it's paying for a lot of what's happening um and it's increasingly a big provider of troops and police to the missions which essentially the rest of the big funders do not do so all of this combined and gives, gives China a lot more influence. And why this is important in the long durée is because the ideas, and this, this comes back a bit to this idea of liberal state building, what is peacekeeping predicated on apart, beyond the stabilization and stop the conflict? What's the exit strategy for the missions and what's the long-term idea for what the peace looks like? Well. As China and, in fact, many other countries have more influence over the ideas at, at the heart of, of UN missions, then some of those ideas might change. Where human rights fits into these missions and whether the missions should be sent with a strong observation mandate on, on human rights comes under um, challenge. The idea of what the rule of law looks like in a democratic society comes into a, a, a tension, if you like, or it's contested by different visions of that. And um, so, so that's a really important thing, which is is uh, a kind of on the one hand, there's a parallel to the 90s. The U.S. is stepping back and maybe peacekeeping is getting less support. But the difference now is that there's, there's a member state and, and others who are willing to step into that. And that might have um, serious kind of ramifications or implications for what the political vision is for the peace that's being spread around the world and, and what that means for global order.
0: We'll link to Charlie's piece in the conversation when it comes out. For more information about Charlie and his work, you can visit his website at charlesthunt.com. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen.